seems lost. Duty. Honor. Country. We're Public Radio. WCBN. FM. Air Harbor. Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's November 5th, 2014, and today Alice Walker is here on campus to give the Zora Neale Hurston Lecture, presented by the Department of Afro-American and African Studies and the Center for the Education of Women. Earlier today, engineer Liz Wasson and I headed to DAS to speak with Alice Walker. Alice Walker is one of the most prolific authors of our time, known for her literary fiction, including the Pulitzer Prize winning The Color Purple, her many volumes of poetry, and her powerful nonfiction, including We Are the Ones We Have Been Waiting For, published by the New Press. Alice Walker's latest two books are also published by the New Press. The World Will Follow Joy, Turning Madness into Flowers, New Poems by Alice Walker, and The Cushion in the Road, Meditation and Wandering as the Whole World Awakens to Being in Harm's Way. And now for the conversation. Today we are here in uh, the DOS building, uh, our mobile unit um, of living writers. We've gone on the road, we've, we've left the studio, and today I'm talking with Alice Walker, um, who is here for the Zora Neale Hurston lecture um, that will be happening today at 5.30 p.m. at Hill Auditorium. Um, Alice, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's, it's an absolute delight to be sitting in the same room with you. You probably hear that all the time. <laughs> so I won't go, go on. <laughs> um, well, let's, if you don't mind, um, it's, the show is, is Living Writers. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I'm that. <laughs> yep, you, you qualify <laughs> quite nicely. Um, and you're here to give the Zora uh, Neale Hurston lecture today. Um, Zora Neale Hurston has played, a, I think, a, a big part in, in, in your life as, well, part of your life as a writer. Um, could you talk a little bit about perhaps the how and maybe 1973 um, when you were finding her her unmarked grave well uh it was very uh disturbing that she had been buried somewhere nobody knew where uh and that um also her books were out of print and i discovered one of them that i loved their eyes were watching god and i just set out to try to find her and i did i think uh i was in a big field full of weeds and i stumbled into a hole that looked like it was the grave size you know of a a place where somebody would have been buried and how were you able to research it alice like how research you, what like research that this field could be oh I, was, I i just went around the community and asked everybody who had known her and uh and and they told me that she had been buried in that um that cemetery and that that part of the cemetery was the old cemetery it was called the garden of the heavenly rest and that there were only two graves out there and one of them was was hers i'm not sure why that's so but anyway that's mm. that's how i i 
found what I think was her grave. And in any case, I put a marker there, and uh, it's still there. Hmm. Do you manage to get back to it at all, Alice? I don't. I don't. I went back. Uh, you know, the, now there's a humongous Thor Neale Hurston festival every year, and you know, like a hundred thousand people go there to this little town. I have no idea where they put them. <laughs> But, is uh, it in Fort Pierce or is it in more of her, her town? Eatonville. Her, her, Eatonville. her grave okay. is in Fort Pierce, but her her town was uh, Eatonville. So that's where the festival is. So people come and then they go to, to the grave site and all of that. Uh, but her, uh, you know, her her legacy is uh, restored and um, affirmed. I should say affirmed because. You can't really say it was restored because it was never really, um, you know, it was always tenuous. She had so many detractors and people who were envious and misguided. Can we talk a little bit about when you were young and writing, like very young, when you were um, maybe even as young as eight, were you writing poems then, Alice? I was. I was writing poetry from the time I was two. Two? I mean, I don't know whether I was actually writing them, but I was learning them because poetry is a very strong tradition in my community. So my first uh, poem was, I think, two lines, and it was Easter lilies, pure and white, blossom in the morning light. That's it. And everyone loved it, and I fell in love with reciting poetry. And my sister, who was in college, would come and recite poems to us. And, and I, I just loved it, so it stayed with me. And was it something as, for when, when would you write? When you were, were you, would you, um, well, later. Well, how, or how was the, because I, I almost feel like with your, and this, I hope this isn't presumptuous to uh, say, no. but your, your life, um, the writing is this, the skeleton from which everything I feel, feel like discoveries or the way of thinking about the world, um, it's all centered with writing. Well, my mother claims that when I was crawling, <clears throat> she would look for me and I would be behind the house. I would have crawled away from everybody and I would be sitting with my back up against our little shack and I would be writing in the dirt with a twig. And that's my favorite description of myself as a writer, I think, because, you know, that's how writers should be, I, I believe, in some part of myself, that you should just be, you know, out there somewhere with your back pretty much to everything else and concentrating on what it is that you are meant to be doing and in my case it seems that writing was what I was meant to do and so you were back there with writing, a twig mm -hmm, writing in the dirt with a twig because we couldn't afford you know paper or pens uh, and later on I would scribble with a twig or whatever I found in the margins of a catalog because you could get a catalog out there in the country when you couldn't get anything else. It was and one of those Sears robots. We used it or? for everything, including toilet paper. And I'm sure this is true of so many people in the country. Do you think because of that, that story that your, your mom told you, that that was one of the reasons she, it seems like she was a champion of your education to make mm -hmm. sure that you would go to school, that, that you had opportunities that at that time, um, weren't easy ones. She could see in me something she couldn't see in herself, which is a, a miracle, actually, to be able to do that. 
uh, and she saw that I had this this whatever it was. I mean, I was going to say gift, but who knew what it was? But it was a, definitely there and a calling. And she, bless her heart, supported that to the best of her ability. But Alice, for for your um, looking, then kind of going through a little bit of your biography here. Then you went to Spelman College and for a couple of years met Howard Zinn, uh-huh. who was um, to become one of those sort of important people in in how you thought about the world, perhaps in this. De- well, time. Howie and my father were born in. They're both Leos, and they were they were very similar. Actually, my father was in in his own way an activist. He was the first uh, black man to vote. Uh, and not be killed in our community. Uh, he voted for Roosevelt, uh, who, who um, you know, brought the New Deal because people were suffering very badly. And so when I got to Spelman, there was Howard Zinn, also an activist, and I really connect them. You know, I didn't for a long time because they seem so dissimilar, but they're not. They're not. They're both... You know, Howie comes from a, uh, he he died a couple of years ago, but he came from a working class family, very poor, uh, had a chance to improve his situation by going to the army, uh, where he became a bombardier. And, uh, you know, he he and my father were very much um, determined to change society. And my father was very courageous, and so was Howard. Yes, I can't. It's hard to imagine what that must have been like—the bravery to, to go and vote when you know that, the people who have done so before you were killed for it. And there were three white men with shotguns sitting, waiting for him to try to vote. He was remarkable. You know, I didn't get along with him later on in life for other reasons, but I never, um, you know, had anything but admiration for his courage. That is really that's. That's, so in some ways, maybe that's those examples that we don't even realize. Those are models that you now under how you understand the world, like why you have courage yeah. to stand in the mm-hmm. places that you. Well, you you are you you come from your parents and your grandparents and whoever else created you, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, it's possible that you have inherited some of that. And maybe even beyond um, our our own sort of DNA, when you're thinking, because I keep thinking, Alice, when I think of you, I think of this idea of the universe, like, and even some of like uh, one of the poems in um, one of your most the most recent collections, "The World Will Follow Joy," turning madness into flowers. Um, but there's there's an example. There's a poem um, where you you're talking with. Um, John and Yoko Lennon's um, son, Sean Lennon, mm-hmm. and you you begin by saying something. I've known you before you were born. Yes, and I I come from a community where people knew me before I was born, and that's very rare and really wonderful when people say that to you, because they really know you, you know. Uh, and I I felt that way with Sean Lennon, even though you know they were living in New York and we were living wherever we were, Mississippi, I guess, uh, during those years. But there's a spirit of um, you know just radical uh, compassion and and activism and courage uh, that is recognizable 
and you you see that uh, hopefully in the children. In all children. Well, in the children who have inherited that, you know. Do you think it's it's the possibility that all all children have inherited courage and possibility of of uh, no, I don't. I think that uh, people inherit different things. Some people inherit a lot of meanness and viciousness and stinginess. That's just who they are, and we can accept that, you know. But other people don't have that. They don't necessarily inherit that. When you're talking about inheritance, Alice, mm-hmm. it makes me think of what you did when you won the prize that is is it the John Lennon Peace Prize uh-huh. when you were awarded that and you you gave all the 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 the, the prize winning to um an orphanage yeah um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that moment cuz that that figures into um this book too the world will follow joy there's mm-hmm. a lovely photograph of two little girls yeah yeah well um uh, i wanted to adopt a child i wanted to adopt an african child and I actually had met an African child that I really wished this moment I had adopted, even though, you know, I'm not sure I would have been all that great as, you know, a, a surrogate mother. Uh, but anyhow, I decided that I could, instead of adopting a child, uh, given my life way, you know, I wouldn't always be there, I would adopt an orphanage. And by adopting an orphanage, I could help support a lot of children and the people who run the orphanage. And that was years ago, and the orphanage is doing well, and um, the children are are getting very good marks in school, and Mm -hmm. they're doing, in some cases, as good as or better than the children who are in the regular schools. And this is in a little place called Kisi, Kisi, Kenya. Mm Mm-hmm. It seems like you are truly a citizen of the world. Well, where else would I be a citizen of? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes people feel like they need to be of only one place and sort of, but, but you seem like you, I know that you value, for example, your garden as well. Mm -hmm. Like you, you do, you connect to the land and mm-hmm. in this way but it also seems like your your openness and your moving you're moving within and around the world but that's exactly why I can do that because I'm rooted in my own garden I can be rooted in everybody's garden because what that means is that you want everybody to have a garden mm-hmm. you understand gardenness you know and what is that like what is understanding gardenness well that is essential to us you know that monsanto should be run out of town on a rail because it's trying to destroy people's connection to the earth through their gardens and through the food they eat and the crops they grow uh so i understand that coming from a little place in the middle of georgia that is like nowhere you know it's just you you pass it and you blink and it's gone but uh it's the same everywhere. Everybody needs to be connected to the land. There is something about when you have your hands in the soil, too, isn't it? Like, that's peaceful. Because at least my grandfather, he used to um, have a very small patch of a garden mm-hmm. in a row house in London. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and to him, that was, I, don't, I think that was his meditation. That was his place to be where he could be more himself than mm -hmm. at, at the work or at the pub or... Right. Well, it's paradise. You know, when you, if, no matter how small it is, uh, it permits you to see, you know, the whole of paradise because it's like a portal into the rest of paradise to have a garden. And that's why we should never permit governments to destroy other people's gardens. You know, their fields, their crops, their animals. It's the most heinous thing you can do to people. So do you think that maybe in some ways, like one of the things the government might be able to do is support more family-owned farms or find a way? Not this government. It's not interested in that. And this government is interested in controlling the farms and wiping them out as small farms and making huge, more and more huge agribusiness so that they can make a lot of money for someone like Monsanto. That's what this government is about. Yes, I remember being shocked um, by reading about the Kafkas, the, the, where they have these large farms and consolidating where all these the cows and they have no well anyway we don't need to speak about these grim grim things right now um let's talk more about writing alice because um that's a way is it is it fair to say that writing is the the way of do you see the world in some way um or understand well it's, it's, are you it's a craft <laughs> writing is a craft and like any craft, if you uh, pursue it with diligence, it opens everything because it's, it's a key, you know, it's a key and it's a tool. And therefore, you, you know, you're equipped. Often people go out into the world and they're not equipped. So they, they have no way of actually seeing where they are. And in some way, it's, it's almost um, as if they're, they're born in a, you know, in a body and in a place and in a time where they have no, no, um, no ballast. They have no, no real grounding, you know. And I think more and more people are being born that way because the ground is literally being taken from under their feet. They have nowhere to be. And so they're just bodies, you know. I mean, they, there's nothing much in the culture that would, I mean, thank God and goddess and everything, all the divas for meditation because you can sit in a corner somewhere and connect to your spirit. But for most people, without a guide, that's impossible. So they, they think that they're just the little body that they're in, and it's just a little prison, you know. So they, they never get beyond that. And it seems important to find a, a certain s stillness to be able to I don't know even have a moment to recognize your breathing or your body or well yeah or and then <clears throat> recognize it in someone else as well you do you have to have quiet and you have to have stillness and and peace and but people fill it up with something people cannot be quiet often it's the hardest thing for humans to just be quiet how do you find, or do you have, a balance between the writing and 
because you you write you've written you, I mean you've written everything Alice the um, the n novels poems essays um, your blog posts um, open letters um, how do you find is there a balance between the writing um, and being out in the world uh, as an activist it it feels like the writing is also an instrument of that activism too, <clears throat> but also as a way of purely telling stories. They're not separate uh, because writing is its own activism and it would be very difficult for me to engage politically or spiritually in something without examining it and writing is the way to examine what you are experiencing. Mm -hmm. So it's very useful. You know, it's it's a very good thing to have in your toolbox. When you're writing, is there can you can you remember a moment where something changed for you that you had thought to be true, and then in the writing of it, and kind of trusting the writing of it, you you found something different or new. Well, that would happen if I try to write something before it's ready. If I try to write something before it's ready, chances are it will never be anything but something stillborn. How do you know about when it's ready then? Like what, what's it, your It's just process? a talent. It's just something that you grow into knowing. Uh, and I, I trust it. So I, I rarely try to do anything until it's just really pouring out of the hand, you know. Uh, so I, I saved myself a lot of stress. I used to talk about how, you know how writers are depicted writing on paper and then balling the paper up and throwing it over their shoulders? I, I never had that. I mean, I I just think of that as a waste of trees. I do rewriting in my head, most mostly. Uh, or I'm now using a computer, which is a bit like doing it in my head because you just erase. You know, it's it's very interesting. I'm very Aquarian, and and therefore this age of communication uh, with computers and things like that that we we click. You know, because of that ease of of um, forming, shaping things, and discarding what you don't need without any mess. You know without throwing away paper. And so the Aquarian part is this, is it the fluidity? Is it something about No, it's, it's being at home in air, in space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and communicating across time and, and uh, space, you know, through through emptiness. I mean, it, it's when you create something, it's such a miracle that it, it it comes at all, really. I mean, where does it come from? Who knows? There it is. <laughs> and and your part really is just to be amazed and joyful, uh, and glad that it arrived, like a letter, you know. I mean, because but really, it's just magical. That's so good to hear, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> because I feel like so often, because I, I teach in a writing center, and mm -hmm. so often it's about acknowledging the struggle uh -huh. <laughs> of writing, you know. Yeah. And, um, 
But you know what? The struggle will be so much less if people can just wait. That's why writing in schools is not necessarily good for you. Who needs a deadline? (laughs) You know, really. Whose idea was that? That's right. You know, who needs an assignment? Life will give you an assignment. You know, you'll give yourself an assignment, but nobody outside of you should be saying you have to do this or that. It's absurd. And part of what you can do, maybe, is to be ready or to be open. Exactly. And that's why you need a practice. You need, you know, walking, you know, sitting, you know. Gardening. Yeah. Something. A practice of whatever sort. So, so Alice, for you, with so you never do. You, well, I know that you've you've given um, your archives to Emory University. So I know you do have a paper trail. I do. I do. <laughs> well, pre computers. A huge one. And so, did when you, I guess, was did you have a group of notebooks that you used to go to? I like used to a, write in a notebook. Could they be gardens of a sort or? Yeah, well, they are, um, but the but I also had an actual garden always. You know, I, I moved to the country many, many years ago and to a little patch of land that had no water, no electricity, and I wanted a garden. Now, how would I have a garden without water? So my neighbor, who lived on the far hill over the way, ran uh, hoses and pipes and more hoses from her house. She had a well to my, up the hill to my garden. And I had the most gorgeous garden full of snapdragons. And that's that was first things first, because now it sounds like you didn't have water. You didn't have water or electricity in your in well, the house? Or did you just no, go find I, the land for the garden first, Alice? I, no, I found the land for the view, for the space. So I could look out into infinity which is clearly where I need to look. <laughs> and so beyond the snapdragons uh-huh. is infinity. Right, yeah. Hmm. And we all have that, but you'd be amazed at how many people never realize it. They think they're just stuck in some wherever little thing they are in, the body, the room, the house, the town, you know. And in a way, that means that, you know, all the magic is lost on them. And then they turn to television. Which is distraction. I try to tell myself it's also storytelling. (laughs) But in sort of this new medium. You know, I like Mad Men. Okay. <laughs> so I, it's not true confession, yeah, Alice so, Walker. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not a purist. I mean, I like what's good and what's well done, and you know, uh, House of Cards. I think is great, and and many other things. But I'm saying that as a, as a, you know, as something that sits in your house day in day out, you know, programming you, is treacherous, and people have to understand that that is so. Because they're, they're, that sense of being able to create from a place that is, you know, pure and open to infinity is stolen from you. You know, that, that you, you grow to have no idea of that, the power of that place of emptiness inside. 
and, and it's just, you know, it's amazing. I mean, that's why people go to monasteries. That's why they do retreats. They're trying to recapture uh, and nurture, you know, that that autonomy um, that they have, you know, the, the spiritual autonomy, which a culture like this one, which is so noisy and so crass, you know, and, you know, so commercial, it just kills. It has no use for that. In in the the cushion in the road and in the world will follow joy. I feel like there's moments when you're you're talking about being an an elder, like what that what that means, like the 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 power of that. And maybe it's because you've you've have this sense of the and this these different connections of what maybe some people don't really. You have a sense of what they've lost, even if they some people might not. No, because the culture is so quick, or could I, I, hmm, not that you have. Do you have any answers, Alice? I was going to say, what can people do? <laughs> well, but people can slow down. You know, it's not impossible to disengage and to choose. You know, do you realize how much of life people are flooded with that they don't choose? Mm. Or you just you sort of are happy with letting others make these you choices. Give up. You, yeah. you give up and you feel helpless and like it's going to happen anyway. And you know why not go along? But uh, you know ultimately that means a kind of death for you. You know, and and out of compassion for yourself, I think you would want to begin to be slower and more attentive, self-attentive. And that's not selfish. That's finding... Uh, I don't care if it's selfish. I mean, don't be, don't be stopped by, you know, fearing that something that you need means that you're selfish. I see it as you needing something that you need and having sense enough to pursue it. Alice, what are you... Um what are what are the things that you're you're writing now? Do you well? I'm writing mostly on my blog, which I love. I really enjoy it. It's it's a way to be really um, connected to you know a lot of different causes and uh, thoughts and books that I I like to share with people and movies and uh, plays and uh, you know just whatever really strikes me. I can write about it's, it's basically, you know, writing in the dirt with a twig. I writing feel, in the air. Right, or writing in the air. And, and it's, it's, it feels very free. Uh, I don't permit comments because I find most of the comments that people make just totally beneath them. I don't, no matter who they are, they should realize that most of the commentary that they make is really beneath them as human beings, that they've lost if they ever had it you know, any sense of grace. So I don't do that, and that means that I can then just express what I feel and make an offering of it, and you can take it or leave it. I love that word, the offering. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it is. I mean, if you're given a gift, and writing is a gift, like music or painting, you know, it's, it's offered to you. And, and you take it and you make something out of it and then you offer it to whoever 
you know, is is qualified, you know, to, and by that I mean, you know, whoever ever really deeply cherishes, you know, knowing something, you offer it to them. And it, it makes me think of everything in its own time as well. Like maybe people will find different pieces of your writing mm-hmm. and they'll connect to it in a different way mm-hmm. at different times. No, and, and they can, you know, if, if they're not really feeling political, they can just, you know, not pay any attention. But I think it's dangerous at this point not to pay attention to political things because... Uh, you know, we have before us the necessity to transform what is here that's not working and in a terrible way is not working. And we're basically looking at the end of the planet if we don't uh, acknowledge just how bad things are. And no amount of escapism or feeling like, you know, being privileged Americans will mean that we will escape. We won't escape. You know, as long as Fukushima's happen. Uh, you know, and they will continue to happen. We are pretty much done for until people, you know, get it that we have to radically change. I sometimes think it would be great if we could really boost NASA a bit more and shoot everyone up into space a, a couple of times, just or once at least a lifetime, so that they can look at the Earth. I know. In that way. Yeah, well, they've been there, they say, and they did look at it, and they had a, an epiphany, but it hasn't helped. And I, you know, I know that many people think of that, you know, experience as being transformative for a lot of people. But in my view, you shouldn't have to leave Earth to love it. Well, that, that makes me think of your garden and looking into infinity. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what you mean, Alice? Well, I mean, why would you have to leave Earth to love it? I mean, Native Americans haven't left Earth to love it. They loved it while being here. You know, and all the indigenous people who, you know, love the Earth, they didn't have to go anywhere. They saw that it was beautiful. It was wonderful. And we're all indigenous well, in some ways, Some of right? us are not indigenous, but that's all right. Or, or at least to the globe. Well, some of us are not even indigenous to the globe, but that's okay, too. <laughs> yeah, some of us came from somewhere else. I mean, we, we now understand that we are in a galaxy that is, you know, part of millions of galaxies and that beings have been coming and going, and some of them have been here and are here. Uh, and you can check this out on people like David Icke and other places, you know, uh, but... It shouldn't surprise us. I mean, the idea that we're the only, quote, intelligent beings in the whole universe is laughable. It's, it seems a bit pompous. No, it's totally we don't, hysterically laughable. We can't understand Hardly the boundaries anything. of our own universe, let alone the neighboring ones, right? So. <laughs> well, you know, we are, we're 97% water or I love something that. like that. And, uh, and we're basically polluting and destroying all the water. Now, is that intelligent? Right. The whales and dolphins I mean, try to tell us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. So anyway, you know, um, you just keep going. You know, you keep going, and as you understand more, you behave differently. And I think one of our problems is that we keep behaving the same way, thinking that things will come out differently than they have come out, and they won't. Alice, could I ask you to read a, a poem? Sure. One, would you? Uh-huh. Is there? I've, 
got three books to choose from. Mm. Is there one that you you feel like Mm-mm. like reading? No, you choose. Oh no, I can't because look, I, str- I can't. It dog-eared all these <laughs> these. I, I can't either. Why not? Well, because I have to put more thought into it than this. I can't just automatically choose something to read that I don't necessarily feel at the moment. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you've had all these books all this time. I'm sure there's something <laughs> that you like that you'd like to hear read. And I'd be happy to do it. Oh, that's so kind. No, no, no it's stubborn. And and stubborn, I know. And usually I'm, because I'm like, but I'm interested to know what you feel like reading at this time. Well, well, let's, why don't we just read the whole book? No, we don't have time, because there's there's something. Let's see. Well, goodness. Let's see, folks. What I'm doing here is now I'm just looking at everything that I've, um. That you've marked? I've marked. Um, I'll read a poem that I was going to read tonight. Really? Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, But let's see if I can find it. I was almost going to have you read the one that I was going to read to Mom yesterday over the phone. (laughs) Uh Yeah. I hope I haven't, by Mm. dog-earing so many pages, I hope I haven't um, obscured the title. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. And I should say thanks to New Press, to Bev at New Press for sending... I like the new um, these books edition of the paperback copies. And I love that you chose to put images in here, too, photographs. Well, you know, I love the, the, the orphanage, and I love those children. And sometimes it's very nice to see them. And then there's the gecko at oh, the end. <laughs> here's, a, <clears throat> here's a short one that I like. This Human Journey. Don't waste one moment trying to be someone different or someplace other than where you are. This human journey is like finding yourself in Brussels rather than in broccoli. Find out what's good about the place in Brussels as in broccoli. That must be something. Thank you. I love that one. I'm yeah, so glad me too. You chose it. Me too. That was the right poem. Yeah. For the right, right now. Thank you. Thank you, Alice Walker, so much Mm -hmm. for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Olivier from Chicharibre, and you're listening to WCBN FM and Arbor. Cubs one strike away from the league championship series appearance. And the one-two on the way. Swing and a miss. Cubs win. Celebration time on the mound at AT&T Park. The Cubs have taken care of the San Francisco Giants in four games. A great, great win for the Chicago Cubs. You are listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, Leo Blavin. Joining me, Alec Geese. That call courtesy of... AM 670 WSCR in Chicago. The great Pat Hughes on the call as the Cubs once again for the second straight year headed to the NLCS. I know you and I have both watched portions of this series. For whatever reason, they insist on starting the game just so late. And I missed the Monday night theatrics and I made sure to stay up even with the score. Seemingly out of reach as bad as the Giants bullpen had been all year. You just don't expect to see three runs put up in the bottom of the ninth or in the top of the ninth inning, especially with that Giants team that just doesn't lose elimination games. Yet here we are, the Cubs are back in the NLCS and the Giants for the first time in six 